0: Welcome to the Table Community Church Podcast. The Table is located in the Gallatin Valley in Southwest Montana and is joining God in bringing people together around the good news of Jesus. If you have any questions, or if there is in any way we can serve you, please let us know by reaching out to hello at thetablechurch.us. Again, that is hello at thetablechurch.us. We hope you enjoy the following episode.
1: We are wrapping up our series in the book of Jonah today. We've been in a series the last five weeks called Into the Depths. Into the Depths. And Jonah, if you want more context, go back over the last four weeks. All of the episodes are online. We dive into a lot of the historical, a lot of the uh, important concepts when reading the book of Jonah that are often overlooked or missed, We mistake Jonah for a book about obedience or disobedience. We mistake Jonah for a book about uh, immorality and morality. We mistake Jonah for a book about a guy getting eaten by fish. Um, Those things are all important and they're all in the book of Jonah, but they are not about. That is not what the book is about. And today we end with Jonah um, and a big question mark. The way that the author abruptly ends Jonah is meant to make us go, what? So it's a very important series, a very profound book. And so I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it if you haven't done so already. But in short, Jonah exposes the depths of our need for God's mercy and grace. Whether you are religious or non-religious, whether you are uh, spiritual but not religious, whatever, however you would define your walk or trajectory at this time, Jonah is about revealing your need, my need, your neighbor's need for the depths of God's grace. To swim in those waters, to sink in his love, but Jonah often doesn't do that. Today is Palm Sunday, and we on purpose made it so that we would go through this text on today. Because here's the interesting thing, is that today, Palm Sunday, this is when Jesus gets on a donkey, rides into Jerusalem... The donkey is a symbol of peace. It's not a war horse. It's a peace horse. And so Jesus is riding into the city looking for peace. The irony is that Jonah is leaving the city hoping for destruction. And what's interesting is the irony is, remember, Jonah's name means dove, son of faithfulness. And the dove is the symbol of peace. So whereas in Jesus, peace is riding in on a horse, the dove of peace is flying away out of Nineveh. It's important to see those contrasts because we're going to make a decision in our lives whether we are going into the city or out of the city. Whether we are riding in with Jesus or whether we're flying out with Jonah. Palm Sunday is asking the question, will I go in or will I step out? And so keep that in the back of your mind, and we'll land there as we spend time uh, walking through this today. But for now, um, let's go ahead and jump in. Jonah 4, verses 1 through 11. Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And it says, Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. He prayed to the Lord, please, Lord, isn't this what I said while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled towards Tarshish in the first place. I knew you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast and faithful love, and the one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. The Lord asked, Is it right for you? Do you have reason? Why, Jonah, are you so angry? Jonah left the city and found a place east of it. He made himself a shelter there and sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew over Jonah to provide shade for his head, to rescue him from his trouble. Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant. When, it came, when the dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, and then it withered. As the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down on Jonah's head so much that he almost fainted and he wanted to die. He said, It is better for me to die than to live. Then God asked Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry? Do you have good reason for this anger? Why are you so angry about this plant? Yes, it is right, he replied. I am angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you cared about the plant, which you did not labor over and did not grow. It appeared in a night and perished in a night. So, Jonah, if it's okay with you, may I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who can't distinguish between their right and their left, as well as many animals. The end. You're supposed to chuckle. The last word of this book is about animals? Like, what happens? It's a very strange text. If you go to many children's Bibles, they leave this chapter completely out of the children's Bibles. They don't know what to do with this chapter. That's unfortunate because it teaches us how we can process our anger with God. It teaches us about having honest conversations with ourselves and with God. So it's important that it's chipped out. But people just don't understand what to do with it. It's hard to communicate these concepts to kids, and so we're like, "Oh, we'll just end it with chapter 3 where everyone gets saved, and then it's the end of the day. That's not the book point of the book of the Jonah. So let's, let's dive in. A, a, a couple of years ago, in 2015, I read an article by a pastor I follow named Scott Sauls. He's a part of the Presbyterian Church out in Nashville. Um, he's kind of a disciple of Tim Keller, a solid guy. I really enjoy his work, um, encourage his work to you all. Uh, he wrote an article where he talked about one day at church, some guy comes in, has kind of a downcast look, and he approached and said, what's going on? And the guy said, I'm just curious if there's a place for me here. And he said, well, why do you say that? And then this guy, apparently he had just gotten out of prison for some violent crimes, some intense things happened in his past. And by the end of the story, Scott said that he was taken aback, offended, grossed out, disgusted by the things that this guy shared that he had did. And so the guy asked the question again, can I belong here? And he said the only thing that came to mind was Corey ten Boom's response to a guy that she recognized from her concentration camp, where she said, essentially, because of Jesus, there has to be a place for you here. And he ends the article with saying, can we stomach God's grace? Grace is often viewed as this kind of weakness, this sort of, uh, and you'll see why here in a minute, um, this sort of like letting things go, forgetting all the hard stuff. That's not grace. Grace is probably the most scandalous thing in the entire Bible. Our culture has manipulated grace to sound like weakness but it takes a lot of strength to be gracious. Can we stomach God's grace? That's what we're exploring today. That's the title for today's sermon. Can we stomach God's grace? You know, at times I've been guilty of crossing that line too, when hearing somebody confess, wanting wanting to make sure I emphasize the justice that they deserve. But I actually, I move beyond justice to wanting their destruction a lot of times, if I'm being honest. We live in, a, we live in an eye-for-eye eye culture. Um, and we co- we'll go back to the scriptures. Well, the Old Testament says eye for an eye, and then Jesus makes some adjustments and helps them understand what he meant by that. But ultimately, eye for an eye wasn't to say, hey, if somebody takes your eye, you're free to just go take their eye. That was actually a limit. That was to limit the amount of things that we could do to an offender. Because what happens when somebody hurts us? Do we want typically just an eye for an eye? No. We want their head. So that law was to limit, not to permit. Just think about kids. I remember growing up, all the jokes. uh, The big jokes were like the your mama jokes. Remember those? Yeah. When somebody would say to you a your mama joke, you would never respond, well, your mama... No, you would say, and your daddy, and your sister, and your brother, and you would just go on because eye for an eye is not enough. So if that doesn't work out, what do we do? Well, we have to swallow the hard pill of grace that God gives. And so we're going to look at this in three questions. The first one is this. How can we relate to Jonah? How can we relate to Jonah? Keep in mind, Jonah is a mirror Go back again and listen for more information on that. But we have learned that Jonah is a mirror in which we look to see the depths of our worst tendencies in order to expose the depths of our need for God's grace. If we read Jonah and we begin to sneer at Jonah, we have fallen into the trap of being Jonah. It is a mirror. So we're supposed to hold it up and go, how can we relate? Well, notice, Jonah is... In this opening, Jonah is greatly displeased. And the reason being is because Nineveh has repented. And notice, he's not outside of the city yet. He hasn't left the city yet when he's angry. This means he's watching tangible changes happen in the city. And so in the chapter 3, when it says that the king said, remove the violence from your hands. This is Old Testament language for talking about the social structures that we inhabit. Things that cause injustice towards others. Building systems and things in place that tend to put people down, lift certain people up, and marginalize the poor, and treat people awful. This is, anytime you, use the, you find that word violence, it's often found in that context in the Old Testament. And the prophets riff on this all day long. And so Jonah is seeing a whole city of people like Zacchaeus taking their money of the things they've wronged and handing them back to other people wronging all the rights, going back, making restitution. He's seeing these changes take place because repentance is not just an inner thing. It has to be outerly expressed. It's ironic. Again, the last thing Jesus does before entering the city of Jerusalem is meet Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus goes and makes things right. And here you have Jonah seeing a city of Zacchaeuses, and he's angry. The language indicates being consumed by or possessed by anger. And so let's ask the question, at what and why? Because this shows us how we can relate. Well, the text says that God is compassionate and merciful here. The word compassionate is only used of God. It's only used of God. Compassionate and merciful. It's only ever used of the Lord. Now, this word merciful, it conveys tenderness. There's a tender aspect to mercy. It's actually related to the word, the Hebrew word For womb. For womb. It's almost like mercy is life-giving. But this is who God is, and Jonah's not having it. And it goes on to say that he's steadfast love, and this word steadfast love, it's used all throughout the Psalms, and the word conveys this uncompromising and committed loyalty. It means God is in it for the long haul, for the good of his people and those who come to know him. He is completely loyal in his love, and he's slow to anger, slow to anger. God is not triggered by the latest post you read on social media. He feels no need to react in the way that we do. He's slow to anger. We often read the Old Testament, and people go, how come God is so angry in the Old Testament? Have you read the the Old Testament? There are certainly moments of God's anger. But to just say that God is a god of anger in the Old Testament, you have radically misread the Bible. More controversially to me is why he's so patient. Think about the think about Israelites in Egypt for 430 years. That's a long time. Think about the hundreds of years given notice before the flood. That's a long time. We often capture the moments of God's anger, but forget the entire context of how long this has been going on. So the question might be, why is God so patient? Perhaps we need to read a little bit more closely. God is often pitched as this angry God, and as if anger in itself is a bad thing. Anger in itself is not a bad thing. It is an emotion given to us by God to let us know that something is off. It's the direction and the manifestation of the anger that really matters. And does it consume us? Though he does get angry in Scripture, but ask why. Now, this text, it's ironic that Jonah is using this text because he's quoting out of Exodus 34.6, which is when God has delivered Israel out of Egypt, and their mere existence as a people is because of God's compassion and grace. Nothing they've ever done on their own. Now, we look at this and we go, what the heck? Why is he angry at this? And it says, God is the one who relents from bringing disaster. Now, it's cl- I want to be clear at this moment. God is very clear in Exodus 34, if you keep reading on. If you keep reading on, the last half of Exodus 34, 6 talks about God's justice. He will not let wickedness go unpunished. He will not. But he's a God who loves to relent when the wicked repent. His aim is redemption, not destruction. Jonah's angry at this. And God has been clear about this. He's been very clear about his aim. Listen to a prophet, a contemporary of Jonah, Isaiah. Isaiah 19, 23 and 24 says this. On that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. Assyria will go to Egypt, and Egypt will worship with Assyria. On that day, Israel will form a triple alliance with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing within the land. The Lord of armies will bless them, saying, Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance, are blessed. These are the same people who spent hundreds of years oppressing Israel, and God, hundreds of years earlier is saying, my aim is to make them a family one day. Maybe Jonah was familiar with this. God has been cleared. So what about us? How do we relate? Again, the first one is consumed by anger. Do we know anything about this? Consumed by anger? Sociologists are calling our current cultural moment the, the, the age of outrage. of the people that took a poll last year said they are far more angry than they've ever been. 84% of the people. And so anger kind of leads to this irrationality. Jonah's anger is consuming him to the point where he no longer even wants to exist. And some say he's just being dramatic. Some say he's tired. The point is, is being consumed by anger in an unhealthy direction moving away from Nineveh instead of towards it will result in a withering disposition in our soul. We will wither. This is what anger does. It consumes us to the point where we only focus on us. Fun story from uh, my son's baseball game yesterday. Cove just started uh, baseball. It was open day, opening day yesterday. It was a miserable outside, just so you know. Four hours, a double doubleheader, um, and we're all tired. Well, Cove gets up to bat, and the first time he, he bats, he strikes out. He strikes out. And he's very upset about this. And so the next time he gets up to bat, you could tell. He just had that look in his eye, you know, like he started gripping the bat real hard when he stepped up. He even like hit the plate, you know, and did this and this. And he was ready. I mean, he was clearly upset, and he wanted wanted a second chance here at this. Well, first pitch, he gets nailed in the foot, and you can hear it. I'm sitting behind home plate with all the player, all the player's parents from both teams, and we're all going, ooh. Cope got hit in the ankle, and the, the umpire said, batter, take your base. He looks at the umpire and goes, no. Cope said no, and he got back in the thing, and the, and the umpire was like, what? And everyone's like, what's going on? And so uh, he goes, batter, you, you got hit to take your base. And he goes, no, 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 no. He goes, Did, didn't, you, didn't you get hit? Cope starts arguing with the umpire about whether or not he gets hit with the ball, Cove's like, I didn't get hit with the ball. I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. And the coach was like, what the heck do I do? And so he's like, all right, I guess hit, continue. Because they're getting into this argument whether Cove got hit or not. He clearly got hit with the ball. Everyone saw it. But he was consumed with his, his, what he wanted to do in that moment. And he wanted to hit the ball. And sure enough, he got a hit. Yeah, so go Cove. Yeah. (laughs) I called my brother, my older brother, and I told him what he did, and my brother said, well, that's what Whittingtons do. We never not hit the ball. I'm like, all right, come on, now hang up. So, But baseball has a grand narrative of each game. And when one player begins to focus on themselves, it disrupts the narrative. It disrupts the intent. It causes confusion. And in the same way, this is what anger can do to us. It takes our eyes off the grand narrative of what God is up to and it puts it on ourselves. And then we begin to act irrationally. Our fast food isn't fast enough. We don't like waiting in the line of grocery stores. None of us have problems with road rage, do we? It consumes us. Two-thirds of people report being controlled by their emotions rather than being able to control that and think through it, and process it. Our culture is such an immediate, instant pot culture that we don't have the emotional toolkits available to us to process why we are angry, what we are angry about, and so therefore we get consumed by it. So maybe that's part of Jonah's problem. He's just so consumed by anger, and I think we might be able to identify with that. What about consumed with pain? Perhaps we can empathize with Jonah because Assyria has been a dominant oppressive force perhaps he has seen people he loved wounded killed taken away i don't know but maybe he is consumed by pain and maybe that's why he's angry it doesn't say i remember a couple of years ago when we were meeting here i gave a sermon on grace and forgiveness and i remember sometimes you can just like focus in with somebody sometimes you find people that are tracking in the teaching you just kind of spend some time with them as the pastor just You can kind of engage them. You just know they're paying attention. There's one girl, but she was just shaking her head, getting visibly frustrated. And before the end of the sermon, we hit kind of the climactic moment. She stood up and she left. She could not take it anymore. And the reason being, later, we found out um, she had been extremely betrayed by someone that was supposed to care for and love her. And the idea of forgiveness couldn't happen at that point. But forgiveness is a direction often. It's not often an immediate destination. And it's also, it's also necessary to empathize with the people who have been wounded. But let's not ever lose sight of the trajectory of redemption. Because those who, those who are consumed by pain their hearts and lives often wither. And so we have to be a people that acknowledge the pain is real, empathize with the pain, and help lead people slowly. It's a long process, especially for wounds that go that deep, towards a place of wholeness and forgiveness, that is the aim, is to make Assyria, Egypt, and Israel family. Now this does not mean that every possible situation where forgiveness is given, reconciliation is possible, or even wise, this does not permit abuse. This is not telling you to stay in an abusive context. Let me be very clear about that. God loves justice and righteousness, and where those things are suppressed, we ought to have a conversation. But the trajectory of the heart of a Christian ought to be able to move towards redemption and forgiveness over time. And that does not necessarily mean there are no earthly consequences to it. It does not mean that we're just letting people go scot-free. There's a complex conversation, but I would only want to simply say that the trajectory for a Christian, witness is redemption and forgiveness. Could it be too much? Perhaps he's consumed by prejudice. Jonah has defined himself in chapter two, or chapter one, by his lineage and his faith, and he expresses indifference towards everyone in the narrative. He only talks to the sailors when he's forced to talk to the sailors. Don't think of him being thrown overboard as a heroic moment. We see here how quickly and things escalate for jonah that was not necessarily a heroic moment as we talked about so i'm not going to go back into that but he has defined himself solely by his faith As i mean hey i go to church i read the bible i i, I know the torah i i do all these things but jonah could be dealing with a sense of prejudice that's an option that scholars have highlighted He's indifferent towards everyone, else, everyone in the narrative except the plant. That's the only thing he expresses any joyful emotion towards. We're supposed to chuckle and go, what? Are you kidding me? The only thing that brought him joy was a plant. The prejudice runs deep, and it, like pain, takes a long time to uproot. But the trajectory of the Christian witness is one away from prejudice, Today, we still see prejudice related to racial, ethnic challenges. Just a couple of years ago, I was in Portland with a good friend. We were sitting down for a coffee shop. He's African-American. And these two white guys were hurling racial slurs at him in the middle of, a, in the, middle of the place where we're doing that. I was like, do we need to say something? Do we need to do something? He goes, this is just life here. This is just life here. This is in Portland. And he said, don't, don't let the media lead you to believe that Portland is any more open or inclusive than anywhere else. And this is what he said, he said, because this is not a political issue, this is a human issue. Prejudice will be found anywhere we go. And we often look at the, the trajectory and we say things aren't as bad as they used to be. Often just go spend some time with people in minority communities And just because you don't see, like, the major things like death every single day doesn't mean there's not minor infractions that are still highlighting prejudice. This is not a political comment. This is a theological one. Our depths of sin are so deep that we try to find differences to divide around and to keep us distant from one another. If you have a good theology of sin, that's where it should lead you. We see a lot of hostility in the political sphere right now. I talk a lot about this often, but I want to show you uh, some research that was done uh, a couple of years ago, just kind of where we're sitting. Listen to what uh, Justin Tozy and Brandon Warmke. they're two scholars, uh, philosophers, and researchers, and they, they set out, they surveyed, they took up all, as much evidence as they can, and this is where, this is what they found in all of their research um, about the divide right now between Republican and Democrat or people on the opposing sides. Listen to this. According to the one recent study over 40% of people from each party now regard the other side as downright evil. The same study found that 20% of Democrats, 16% of Republicans report think report think that we'd be better off as a country if many members of the opposing party just died. They're using quotations here. Quotations. Just died perhaps most worryingly, is that 18% of Democrats, 14% of Republicans, supporters feel that violence would be justified if the other side won the 2020 presidential election. This is before the election. And now what we do, the human tendency is to compare, compare the percentages. You're already doing that. I know you. Who's doing what more? But when you make room for the variations, the study is extensive and continues to go on. It's basically an equal playing field when all the other variables are considered. This is just one snippet out of a large swath of research on a particular issues this is the culture in which we are sent as christians and is this what we want is this what the church should be about there's this assumption that the for the christian witness in the bible the assumption is that we are to be a redemptive presence wherever we go this doesn't mean you can't call out truth, but it means that we need to ask questions about why am I really angry towards this person, this person, this person. Oftentimes prejudice isn't revealed until you're actually spending time with and confront with, confronted with people who are radically different than you. Oftentimes it's easy to think that we're not prejudiced about anything until we find ourselves in close proximity with people. And all of a sudden things get interesting. This is how the, hum- this is how the human story works. And perhaps God's intention for Jonah was to confront this all along. Again, the story is more about Jonah than it is about Nineveh. Maybe that's what's going on with Jonah here. Why is he so angry about God's character? And so, this is the second question How does God challenge us in this? You see, God responds to Jonah this is beautiful. He responds to Jonah, not with instructions, but with questions. It's almost like John 14 is true, where the Spirit is a good counselor, a helper. one who comes alongside and advocates for you, advocates ask really good questions. He asks Jonah a series of questions. And it's meant to, like Jonah in the boat, meant to awaken him so that he wouldn't sink. He says, is it right for you to be angry? Now, Jonah is like in the beginning. Notice, Jonah doesn't respond to God. Again, Jonah is not responding to God. He doesn't answer the question. He leaves just like he did in chapter 1. He just leaves. He leaves the city and hope it fails. And so God appoints a worm, a plant, and the wind. This language, you go to, go to Ezekiel 17, read the Ezekiel last part of Ezekiel 17. And you'll see these images, and they're images of judgment. They're images of judgment meant to awaken you. There's a parable about these very same words, and we think that Jonah's author may have had this passage involved. We're not, we don't have time to go into it. But the original readers would be thinking, oh, Nineveh's not on the chopping block. It's Jonah. Jonah. And what these lessons about the plant, the worm, and the wind are about is to show us how things wither in our life when we are living lives not with grace and compassion, not aligned with God's heart and and will. The plant comes, he gets super excited. We're supposed to see kind of the emotional up and down of Jonah. What's making him happy is very self-centric. He's not concerned about anything else. But he's being judged by God in hope to awaken him, revealing to him the depths of his human heart that he might say, Oh my gosh, I'm actually Nineveh. I'm actually the one that, this, that, we need, that we need to have a conversation about. This plant, worm, and wind. God sometimes strategically allows situations in our lives to get out of control that we may have a moment like this. That's something challenging for us to think about. But he's showing us what a life without grace and compassion looks like. We wither. That's what Jonah's doing. He's burning. He's and again the irony, he wants Nineveh to burn, but he's the one with the sunburn. And the challenge that we are the challenge is that we're often so self-consumed, pleasure-seeking, to the neglect of being concerned about what God's concerns are. Dealing with rooted hatreds and hurts that we have. If we don't deal with those, we'll be consumed by them. And then they lead us to a sense of distance from what God wants for us. And then we wither. And God says, should I not care? Should I not shed a tear? Should I not shed a tear? Should I not weep for people who don't know their right hand from their left? This does not mean that they're not able to distinguish right from wrong. This is a Hebrew idiom that just means they're lost. They're lost. Not that they can't tell right from wrong but that they're lost. Should I not care for those who are lost? Can we stomach God's grace? Many of you are familiar with the Poppy Day Massacre, November 8th, 1987. During this time, the IRA and Britain were at odds. It was intense. It was violent. And Ireland and Britain, just years of buildup. And during a British memorial service, IRA planted some bombs throughout this place. They said their intent was to go after the, the military, um, not the civilians. As if that's any better. But prayed were civilians all over the place. The bomb went off. It killed eleven people, ten civilians and one police officer. Well. When the bombs went off, buried in the rubble was a guy named Gordon Wilson and his daughter, Maria. Gordon survived, his daughter didn't. And this is what he recounted with the news reporters afterwards. Now, just remember that we were under six feet of rubble, and I said to her, are you all right? And she said yes, but then was continuing to shout in between the times I was asking her questions. Three or four more times I asked her, And she always said, yes, I'm all right. But when I'd asked her the fifth time, are you all right, Marie? She said, Daddy, I love you so very much. Those were the last words she spoke to me. I have lost my daughter, and we shall miss her. But I bear no ill will. I bear no grudge. Dirty sort of talk is not going to bring her back to life. I shall pray for those people, the IRA bombers, tonight and every night. And may God forgive them. Gordon Wilson went on to be an important voice for peacemaking. But he was called non patriotic because he didn't want the revenge. He was called a bad father because he didn't want he didn't want to hold on to that. Can we stomach God's grace? And then again, June 17th, 2015, Dylan Roof walks into Emanuel African and Methodist Episcopal Church, is welcomed, receives a handout, worships with this church for about an hour, pulls out his weapons and begins to fire. I nine people's lives were taken he was a self-admitted, he's a self-admitted white supremacist. And in court he says he does not he's not sorry. He's not sorry he did what he did. But when some of the victims had an opportunity to respond to him and look at him, this is what some of the victim's family said. Anthony Thompson lost his grandmother Myra, and he said, I would just like him to know that I forgive you. My family forgives you. We would like you to take this opportunity to repent, to repent, to confess, to give your life to the one who matters the most, Christ, so that he can change it. Notice he said unconditional forgiveness. He didn't say, repent and then I will forgive you. He didn't say, repent and then you can have my, you can do that. In, in this horizontal, complex space, he says, I forgive you. Now Repent repent. Alana Simmons lost her grandfather, who is the reverend, and she said, although my grandfather and the other victims died at the hands of hate, everyone's plea for your soul is proof that they lived in love. And Simmons went on to say, hate won't win here. Now for her, evidence of A life empowered by the love of God is to forgive, is to relent and to offer grace and compassion. This doesn't mean there's no consequences. They were very clear that justice needed to be served, but they were also very clear that they will not allow them to drift from justice to destructive things. Can we stomach God's grace? So, how do we respond? If Jonah responds positively, we have no idea how Jonah answered the question. If he responds positively, this means he has to re enter the city with hope, not hostility. If you have your Bibles, go to Luke 19, verse 41 through 44. says as he approached and saw the city he wept for it saying if you knew that this day would bring peace but now it is hidden from your eyes. For these days will come upon you when your enemies will build a barricade around you surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children among you to the ground and they will not leave one stone on another in your midst because you did not recognize the time and when God visited you. He's walking into Jerusalem the city that's supposed to be the light and he says the your walls are going to come crashing down because you have res, you have refused to see the grace of god that has come into your life because there are the natural consequence of a rejection of grace is destruction and it would happen literally not too long after this this area would be torn down and demolished what did Jesus find when he went into the city? He didn't find Nineveh. He found a city of Jonah's. He found people who knew the scriptures, people who knew about the temple, who knew, who were called to be God's people. But what had they done? Next passage. He went into the temple and began to throw those who were selling, throw out those who were selling, and he said, it's written, My house will become a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of thieves. Jesus enters and he flips their tables because they are selling things in the marketplace. And the location of where they were selling was the Gentile court. What this means was there was commercial things happening in the space where outsiders were supposed to come in and worship. This was the space where outsiders could come in and worship. When Jesus is flipping tables, he's not only flipping tables in anger. He's flipping tables to make room for those in Nineveh who want to come and know him. He's making space around the table for those who are far from God. That's what he's flipping tables for. This this chapter is often always invoked for Christian anger in the midst of the culture. But ask the question, what was he angry about and why was he turning over tables? It turns out that he found a city of Jonah's. That's what was angering him. People who loved God's judgment and justed, but cared little about God's grace and mercy for those outside of the four walls. He was turning over the tables that lineage and religiosity can save you. He was turning over the tables of commercialization that keeps people excluded from the people of God and infects our culture. God was overturning, in Jonah, God was overturning Jonah in the way that Jesus was overturning the tables when he came in to the city. So the question I'll leave us with is, what is God overturning in us? When we hold up this book as a mirror, worship team, you can come on up. What is he overturning? I'll leave you with three simple reflections, because oftentimes we're like, well, how do we do, what do we do now? Well, that's an open-ended question, right? The story ends. But Jonah does teach us that we can cry out to God with our deepest hurts. That's a lesson we can learn from Jonah. Is that when he exploded in anger, he did so and had an honest conversation with God. So maybe we can do this. Pray what is in you. We say this often. Just pray what is in you. Anger, frustration, confess, whatever it is. Pray what is in you. Not what you would hope would be in you in years to come. But start with where you are. Pray for a new vision. The whole book of Jonah is to invite us into a vision of how God sees things and participate in that. And pray not only about or against, but for those whom you perceive to be enemies. Not just about or against, but for. This will begin, this is one small step we can take that starts opening us up to the work of the Holy Spirit and helping us see people as God does that we may not be Jonas, who find joy only in the satisfaction of things that we get, but find joy in the mission of God that he is inviting us into.
0: Thanks for checking us out and listening to the podcast. We hope this resource has been meaningful for you during this time in your life. We invite you to share this episode and leave us a review to let us know how we are doing in sharing the gospel in our cultural climate. Be sure to check us out online at thetablechurch.us.